Hello, and thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Today, I wanted to speak to you a little bit about rendering out MP4 video. I know that's probably a pretty exciting topic for everybody. Uh, that's what I've been doing recently. I've been trying to, to kind of put all of that on this workhorse desktop computer that I'm using. Uh, and I'm trying to use, a, well, first I was trying to use Lightroom, right? You're probably familiar with talking about Lightroom for managing photos and sort of working with them and editing them. Uh, it also has limited capabilities of working with the video files that come off the DSLRs that are that are just kind of commonplace with modern DSLR cameras. Uh, so bringing those videos over there, they're normally some kind of MPEG container format, of which I've seen, I guess, MKV or, uh, I don't know, MKS, is that? Is that a Chrysler? I don't know. Uh, it's, that might be a different thing. But there, there's like a handful, like MTS or something like that. There's a handful of these different uh, little like container file extensions that I'm trying to sort out. They're fine. They seem to open to most things. I'm not really having a big problem with it other than ABCHD. I'm definitely trying to sort those out if I have any of those raw ones around. But I have this library of videos around. Now, I appreciate having the original files. And if that's something that's important to you as a media creator, I definitely recommend keeping those original source files around at a higher quality but for me with a lot of elements of video especially a lot of projects that are done but maybe some things that are kind of like i don't know like a, they're, they're an accomplished project but i want to keep those media elements around but not necessarily in their whole quality uh, by any means anymore so i'm trying to go through and render those things out um, and not necessarily about a quality thing but just about an odd format thing like i was just explaining with mkvs and mts's and uh, 3gps and and uh, movs so those are quite common but i'm trying to make the system just a little bit more uniform for the video experience of the, the videos that i have i'm trying to render render those out i was trying to use lightroom to do this i was trying to use it in mass to render out and refile name all of these video elements so that I don't have any more collisions with these video files as I'm moving the file names around, you know, image 0001.mp4 overwrites image 001.mp4 created two years later on a different SD card that got formatted, whatever it is. It's been a problem before. I probably lost media because of it, because of that error. So to try and correct that, I'm trying to go through and, uh, and render everything out with an additional uh, date name that I was able to add in Lightroom. But Lightroom kept crashing, or at least would not render the video that I had trying to get out from the, the Lightroom catalog that I had uh, the video stored in. So it was kind of interesting. I definitely had like a lot of problems with that. It did a great job with a handful of the sets of video, like the 3GP, I think the MTS and MKVs, I think it worked through quite well. But... Any of these MOV files, it just sits at, it doesn't necessarily even lag, it's just not rendering frames, it just sits there like it wasn't asked to respond, the computer's processors don't kick up at all, it's not like it's trying to render out video but not, or... I don't know. It just like pretends like it didn't get asked to do anything at the time. So it's all the struggle of trying to render video. So I, I ended up dumping Lightroom because I was hoping that I could do some automatic file naming and, and file categorizing with Lightroom and have it do a bulk export of video under the format that I was hoping and kind of have it, you know, automate some of that file naming system and uh, export settings and stuff. Uh, I ended up switching over to Handbrake because I was having such a hard time getting Lightroom to actually grab onto the video and do anything with it. So I've been having a great uh, uh, experience with Handbrake so far. And really, there's a lot of the tools in the more modern systems of Handbrake that make the file naming and uh, recompression system quite easy, where you can set things as same as source and use file name as source. Uh, and that's working really quite well to kind of grab a file, put it in a render queue, 
with new settings that are pretty automatic where it's, you know, it's kind of like a two or three click operation to get a new video added to the queue. And so just earlier today, I added a hundred .mov files to the queue, which I hope are set up correctly. I think there's a couple of mistakes I made in there. Hmm. We'll see how they render out, but, uh, but I put those in the queue and I'm, I'm doing a test of it now. And that, that stronger computer, as opposed to my laptop is really burned through those video frames, like much faster. I think I was, I was rendering out about 30 frames a second. So it's almost like real time rendering. If you were to think about like, you know, 30 frames a second in the video, well, 30 frames got rendered of that video in just that one second. So it's going through it much faster than I'm used to in the olden days. It's kind of fun to see. Who knows where it will be 10 years from now. You can see more of my work at billynewmanphoto.com. You can check out some of my photo books on Amazon. I think you can look up uh, Billy Newman under the authors section there and see uh, some of the photo books on film, on the desert, on surrealism, on camping. Some cool stuff over there. And it's, I don't know, it's kind of fun. I like doing that sort of stuff. I like uh, kind of poking around. I want to get out there with the, uh, what was I saying? The, the metal detector. That's the one to get out there with. I think that'd be kind of cool. I was hearing there's a, a number of different things you can do with the metal detector, and it's pretty fun most of the time. In the spots that I've been out, the only thing I've found so far is like casings from, you know, ejected bullets that have been fired out of a rifle over in Eastern Oregon when I've, uh, I guess when someone else had been out there hunting or doing some shooting or whatever it is. And then I've kind of come along through a camp and found some, uh, some old shells and stuff laid out in the, uh, in the dirt over there in between the sagebrush. Um, but that's about the, the most that I've ever found is like a, a cool thing. But I want to go out to the coast, see if I can find something fun and cool that's washed up onto the shore. I had some family that lived that over on the coast for, for a long time. And, you know, when they kind of go out to the coast to do their walks and stuff, I think when you have more access to the coast, you're just out there more and they would kind of find some cool stuff that would wash up over the years. I think they had found like some things that seemed like they were off some Asian fishing boat or some uh, little buoys that would come in or little uh, like crab fishing things that would wash in from our boats or from other boats and stuff. And it'd be really cool. I don't know. It'd be fun to kind of find some of that stuff out on the beach. I think it'd be fun. I was looking at a couple other things that I thought would be kind of neat since it's uh, Christmas coming up soon and since my birthday had just passed. There's a few, um, a few kind of like everyday carry things that I was looking into and some of the brands that are sort of around that or what would kind of be a cool one to pick up. But I had been looking into a few different pieces. One of them was pocket knives. I carry a pocket knife with me most of the time. I think before I talked about the Gerber Gator that I carry around, I think it's a about a four-inch blade. And it's a little bit more than a four-inch handle. It's sort of a full-size grip in the hand. I guess what I'm saying there is it, is it extends open to about eight and a half inches or so handle and blade as it's open. And then it's got the locking uh, back, which I like a lot more than kind of that finger release that you would press um, sort of on the, the inside of the blade to kind of push a little bit of metal out of the way so that the blade can kind of fold back and collapse in on itself. I don't really prefer those. And I kind of uh, found at least like the cheaper blades that I've picked up that were like that to start to fail over time where that, that little metal springiness to it that sort of pushes in place uh, starts to kind of wear off or bend out a little bit and then after a while it wouldn't really lock in place it would lock back enough to be there but then as soon as I put any pressure on it, it would 
fold back in on itself and come toward my hand and my fingers and stuff while I was cutting. So that had happened, I think, a couple or with a couple knives that I had that were like that a few times. So now when I'm getting a folding pocket knife, I really try and avoid that style of it. There are a bunch of them that are like that, and there are a bunch of them that are really pretty cool. And I bet if you buy a higher end brand or, you know, like a better built knife, then you'd probably have better luck with it. But really, I prefer the, the, the back that locks on it. So like kind of, I don't know, maybe three quarters down toward the bottom of the, the handle, there's going to be like a little metal bit that you'd press your thumb into. And that kind of pulls that part of the tang of the knife, lifts a locking release on the blade, and then you're able to swing the hinge of the blade shut to collapse it, fold it, and then put it back in your pocket. Um, I like that kind of style a lot more than uh, than this other type that I was talking about. But when I was looking around, that's what uh, that's what I tried to pick up with the Gerber Gator that I had. And I like the Gerber knives. Um, I've had a couple variants of that style before. I like the kind of rubberized handle. Um, and I like the price, too. It's like 29 bucks, or I think you can get them, I don't know, maybe like on the more expensive end for like 40 bucks. But these uh, these Gerber Gators, the full size, and I think there's a mini. They're pretty good, um, kind of mid-range, usable, folding kind of pocket knives that you would have. And I really like it a lot more than uh, some of like the Kershaw stuff that I've had that's sort of at that lower end price point that's like below $20. I've had those for about six months or so, and then some of the some of those hex screws start to unwind on me, and then all of a sudden I've got I've got a knife that's in like four different pieces, washers and bits and stuff, kind of all over. And that's happened a couple times with those uh, those uh, sort of assembled knives. I try and find some stuff that's like uh, got a certain type of construction on it that keeps it a little tighter together. The hex screws work pretty well on the higher end pieces; those really do hold together really well over time, and they don't have to be dismantled or reassembled but on some of those less expensive knives unless you're doing some kind of more regular tool maintenance to keep those bolts tight they do start to kind of work themselves out on you and the steel of the blade i haven't even gotten to that and the steel of the blade changes like all the time or well i don't know it doesn't change all the time but there's a ton of different variations of quality knife steel that goes into these uh these folding pocket knives or full tang pocket knives but uh, I was kind of looking into that a bit. Like, uh, I guess, like, what used to be the standard for hard knife steel back 30 years ago isn't anywhere near the same as it is now. Now there's a whole bunch of different variations of things that, that give you different benefits or or drawbacks. I guess it's like uh, the, there's, like, steel, but then there's steel that you add chrome into or that you add a certain amount of nickel into or that you add a certain amount of carbon into. And these different variants that are added into the metal give the the steel some different properties and that gives the 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 edge the blade the sh- or, you know the, the way that the sharpness of that blade reacts to different forces that makes it react differently so some types of steel are more brittle but they so they'll like crack if you start axing with it or but that makes them like hard i guess and so that gives you like a stronger edge retention so you can keep that edge sharp for a long time but if it's a really durable type of steel, then maybe it's got a softness to it. And so if you start doing a lot of extended cutting with that sharp blade, it'll go dull on you faster and you'll have to re-sharpen the blade uh, and then it'll lose its sharpness maybe a little faster. But then there's also blades that will rust if they get wet. So if you got a blade that's 
really sharp and stays really sharp, but rusts quickly when it gets wet at all, then that's like a pretty difficult knife to have around too. And so people kind of choose their knives for different things. I guess there's like boat knives or there's a, there's a certain type of steel that's used for people that are doing a, a lot of stuff on the ocean. Like when they're exposed to a lot of salt water, they uh, use a, it's not, um, is it like an H1 steel? That doesn't sound quite right, but there's a certain type of steel that they have that's uh, that will not rust, but is like really hard and holds like a really strong edge. And then there's a whole bunch of different variations of hard steels, you know, like steels that have like some stronger amount or, or I guess uh, tougher resistance to whatever elements they're going to be exposed to. So the, the Gerber Gator that I have, that's a, that's a D2 steel. And I guess you can look these steels up. They're going to be probably more informative. Some, some chart online will probably be more informative than, uh, than my breakdown of stuff. But they'll kind of get into the, the chemical compounds of what makes these steels different and what makes the the knife blade uh, better or worse for the function that you're going for. But really, there is like a tier of not really quite good enough for most things and then where people and knife collectors are kind of trying to pick into uh, for like higher quality knives. And I think it's uh, it's a good litmus test for how high quality your knife is. So there's some... Um, there's some good steels that make inexpensive knives. Um, so I think like for like Victor Knox, uh, Swiss Army knives, you're looking at like a 3 16 steel, which I think now is like a pretty low grade kind of kind of steel. Even for a lot of buck knives, I think it's like the 4, four 16 or something like that. Or, you know, it's a little more. Um, for I think for Leatherman's too, it's sort of in that area. Then I think if you get into the, the SA or rat three knives you're looking at 1095 steel which i think is like a higher carbon steel then i think you get like d2 steel like this gerber gator is that's sort of in the same zone there's also this other stuff this i think chinese made steels that are i think it's like seven cr i got a knife around here somewhere that has it but it's uh 7CR, then there's 8CR and 9CR. And it's got like a, a couple other letters after it too. But I think the first couple is like a 7, an 8, or a 9. And I think that's kind of to the degree that it is good, let's say, for this. Or it's like tough steel or whatever it is. But I think 7 is sort of the lower grade, kind of average grade knife blade steel. 8 is pretty good in comparison to a lot of stuff. And 9 is sort of more of a premium and inexpensive uh, steel option made by the Chinese manufacturers. So I have a couple knives that are made with that. There's also another steel called Os8. I found that around uh, a number of times, and I think that's in some higher end, higher end knife blade pieces too. Uh, also used by some higher end knife manufacturers. Um, I think with some stuff from Benchmade and some stuff from Spyderco. I've seen in the Os8. And let me pull it out here. I was actually kind of thinking about Spyderco and Benchmade and the Columbia River Knife and Tool. Um, let's see, what are those? Columbia River Knife and Tool, Benchmade. There's another one I'm trying to think of. It's a it's a port that's a, like an Oregon-based knife company. Yeah, I didn't know there. I didn't realize there were so many Oregon-based knife companies up around this area. But uh, then, uh, then there's also Spyderco. That's another uh, knife manufacturer that I was, uh, I was looking at. I think those are Japanese. 
but I picked up a Spyderco knife recently. Those are a lot more expensive than, uh, you know, kind of like a lot of the average run-of-the-mill pocket knives that you'd probably pick up in a lot of store or, you know, like a lot of more basic um, supermarket-style stores. I don't know why you're getting a hunting knife at a supermarket, but not so much a hunting knife, but really just like useful folding knives that are good pocket knife tools. Uh, but I picked up the Spyderco knife, and I definitely noticed the uh, the difference in some of the quality of it, uh, just in kind of the way that the construction is, the sharpness of the blade, the way that it works. And this is, I think, um, VG10 steel on the blade. And then it's got some sort of like... Uh, what polycarbonate nylon handle wow whatever that is you know but uh the, the handle works really well then i was also looking at g10 which is another handle material that i see listed out there on a number of knives and that seems to be sort of one of the higher end knife handle options i see that on like the higher end um columbia river knife and tool m16 knives and i see that as an option for uh, the nicer like Benchmade knives. I was looking at some Benchmade knives like the Griptilian. I think that has a G10 handle option. Uh, also the the Benchmade Bugout. I was looking into that knife, um, and that I think has a, a G10 handle too. But I think that kind of provides sort of a kind of a powdery grip almost to it. I think it's another uh, kind of composite material. But it's got uh, a good grip on it so that you, you can still kind of uh, maintain a, a handle even into the sort of wet or slippery conditions. Another knife I had used micarta on the handle, uh, which is, I think, layered. I tried to do this before my on my own, and I've seen someone make it themselves before too. But I think it's um, it's like layered and then sanded down fiberglass and linen or fiberglass and denim or like resin and denim or something like that but i've seen uh, people kind of like layer they would like soak they kind of penetrate just like uh if you take like a bunch of like little sheets i'll say like linen in this case but something kind of with like a thatched texture uh, but you take a bunch of sheets of this and then you penetrate that with uh, fiberglass resin and then lay that down and then add another layer of it, lay that down and add another layer and lay that down. And then you clamp all of that together and then let it cure. That makes this kind of like real compressed brick of these stacked up pieces of fabric that are kind of interlaced together with each other. And then they're now fused together and kind of frozen in place with this, uh, this fiberglass resin to like sort of this sort of solid block. And then what you're able to do is saw right through that, and then you have this kind of uh, solid and grippable, sandable material that you can kind of scrape down and shape into whatever kind of size or shape piece you want. So I have some scales to a Fultang pocket knife over here that has uh, micarta handles. And I think it's kind of a cool handle type. It works well for, uh, for some of the stuff. But there's also like a lot of other options out there or it's that's a, something I thought about it when I got it. And sort of what I think about like the G10 uh, handle stuff, too, is that there's just like a lot of handle options out there. And uh, that's kind of the tricky thing, too, is like um, like I look around it. I don't know how to get into it, really, but like I look around at like um, bushcrafting videos. You know, I might have talked about this before even or I've had the thoughts before, too, about uh, I like bushcrafting or like kind of the idea of a lot of like outdoorsmanship stuff and a lot of like outdoors 
uh, travel and use of the landscape. And I think kind of have an understanding of that is really cool. Um, but the bushcrafting stuff sort of has some little twists or like sort of limitations to it that I think sometimes make it a little a little goofy. But uh, part of the idea is you have like a big knife, almost close to a machete that you use for everything from batoning down two inch thick trees to I guess like just building a trap to hunt small animals to to just straight hunting or combat or whatever it is, but it's supposed to be this kind of all-purpose wilderness tool. Those are cool knives, and I do have a couple of those in that size range. I like the four-inch size probably most a lot of the time, but for a lot of cool stuff, it's like the the five-inch knife, like a five-inch full-tang knife is really cool if you're going to try and do some of that stuff. But really, at that point, or kind of my thinking around it is like that's almost too all-purpose of a tool that you're trying to apply a knife to, you know, like uh, you don't really need maybe to always do that sort of stuff with a knife. Now it's cool when you understand how to use a knife and then you can really build out stuff while you're in the woods or while you're in the backcountry that you didn't have to bring in with you. So that is like a cool kind of survivalist mechanism of not even survivalist, but just when you're in the woods, um, there's a way that you can build out a lot of stuff that you would maybe think that you would need to bring with you. Just kind of a lot of like structural stuff that you can kind of set up or, or make some makeshift elements with if you know how to do some simple things with a knife. And I've heard of, a, of like these practice, these practice systems called the uh, tri-sticks. You could probably look that up like a, like, I don't know, a bushcraft tri-stick or something like that. But it's this bushcraft skills thing where you go through with a twig, you know, like kind of a two foot long stick that's about an inch and a half in diameter and then you you try out a bunch of these different cut maneuvers on it so you kind of like a flat cut a scooped cut uh sort of like a pointed carve or to make like a divot in something or make you know just like all these different little pieces that you kind of go through and do and i guess there's like uh, some little system of those that you can use those pieces on a stick as different tools to make you know different i don't know different things who knows what they are i've seen like snowshoes made i've seen tables made i've seen um, like fire pit cooking kitchens made. <laughs> I've seen a few different pieces and stuff. So it's kind of interesting to see what people can kind of throw together. Really, a lot of the time, I think what it was used for as a plan is what you see expressed by the bushcrafters is you got a big knife and then you whack down a chunk of a tree. You make a, a stand to hold a pot over a fire to purify your water and then you make sort of an A-frame to throw your tarp over so that you have your dry shelter. Now, I think both of those are really one of the least effective means of providing that thing in the outdoors. So, like, you know, I, I don't know how to really say it now, but it's like uh, it's good to know how to start a fire and it's good to know how to stay out in the wilderness if you only have a tarp. Also... It's good to bring a tent and a sleeping bag, and it's good to bring a jet boil and some fuel and a lighter. And those two things really like cut down on the amount of weird sort of dangers that you would have from exposure or risk of bad water or whatever it is. So a lot of the time, what I'm thinking about trying to do some outdoor stuff is how to like cut down on a lot of the extra work or the extra danger um, of some of those risks that you would have to sort of put yourself out into if you're trying to drink unpurified water through 
a sort of haphazardly made heavy can over a fire pit for an hour or two or whatever it is, or staying under a tarp when you have way better and less expensive survival gear or, you know, like uh, tent hunting, camping gear, backpacking gear available to you. Um, so I think that those are kind of the options to sort of steer into. So that kind of brings me to, well, what is a knife and what do you do with a knife? And so for bushcrafting, you're supposed to like build everything that you would go camping with. And I kind of think, well, maybe that's not really what I use a knife for uh, or what a lot of people use a knife for. And I, I've seen it kind of uh, kind of more clearly expressed that like your knife or like eight, you could have a couple different knives, but it's cool to have a knife that's really just for cutting and kind of keeping it as sort of a, a, a more sacred discipline to keep that knife sharp as something that can really do an effective job uh, cutting, cutting into flesh if you need to do some hunting stuff or cutting ropes or cutting parts of whatever you're trying to put together out in the outdoors or whatever it is. And so I think that's kind of like some of the interesting stuff about, uh, about doing some knife preparation stuff. And there's a lot to get into with sharpening and different sharpening stones and some, some thoughts that I have about some sharpeners and sharpening stuff that I want to get into too. But I don't know, I kind of might wrap it up there for, uh, for this part of the podcast. And I'll probably come back in with a part two of things to do with your pocket knife that, uh, that are useful when you're doing some outdoor stuff. And I guess I could bring it around the photo stuff too. Kind of like what I'm saying is when I'm traveling light and I'm outside in sort of more of my normal circumstances, like a two and a half to three inch folding pocket knife really gets by uh, in almost every circumstance that I've needed. And I really don't need that big of a knife. I really just need a small amount of that blade or, you know, I need a small blade to be really sharp. And I think with that, you can be really effective. Like with a scalpel, you know, you can go through and do like a lot of significant and proper work with just a scalpel. And it doesn't necessarily mean that a, a bigger or more broad or more thick blade is going to be a superior tool to just really the act of cutting and slicing or the act of like trying to chop into something that you're, uh, you're trying to do with uh, a pocket knife when you're carrying it around out in the woods with you. You can check out more information at billynewmanphoto.com. You can go to billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support if you want to help me out and participate in the value for value model that uh, we're running this podcast with. If uh, you receive some value out of some of the stuff that I was talking about, you're welcome to uh, help me out and send some value my way through the portal at billynewmanphoto.com forward slash support. You can also find more information there about uh, Patreon and the way that I use it. If you're interested or, or feel more comfortable using Patreon, that's patreon.com forward slash billynewmanphoto. How about these different features related to Logic Pro 10.5? Um, so I think it's like a general overview. There's one specifically about the live loops feature that I was mentioning is, uh, is one of those premier new uh, new interface features that's now part of Logic Pro 10.5. In addition to that, I think they've created a step sequencer, a new sampler. I think they have a, a quick sampler now, and they have a, a full sampler where you can go through and make your own samples to make your own loops. Uh, so you can really be producing your own music, and, uh, and I think that's I think it's really cool the kind of stuff that you can do. That's a big update that they've done. I think they they talk about like what is the ES ESX twenty four twenty seven something like that. It was this old sampler, this old uh, sampler software that was 
probably some third-party pl plugin that ended up being bought and then ended up being integrated into Logic. That's speculation. But the way that it looks, it just doesn't look like Apple had ever designed it. Uh, so it's like it's this crazy looking kind of silver software with a ton of buttons and knobs and stuff. It looks like it was supposed to be some some real object, you know, like a, like if they made some some actual pedal board, you know, it looks like a drum machine or something. Uh, but it's laid out in as a software in front of you, and it's just impossible, it seems to me, to use. So uh, so Apple's gone through and updated that. Uh, that kind of legacy piece. Uh, some people are happy about it. Some people are mad about it. I see some people writing in forums, long live the ESX sampler. And then everybody or plenty of people saying they're, they're happy to see it go and that they're happy to see it uh, replaced by a more modern piece of a uh, more modern utility. So there's a lot of cool features in that stuff too, where you can, you can really get into recording and making your own samples or, or taking a piece of music that you've already recorded and having the sampler go through and auto select these regions of it so you can go through with your, like your keyboard and you can trigger those regions with your keyboard to play that to play that sound out it's it's really fascinating the kind of sampling that you can do with it uh gosh i mean there's just so much production you can do with it so uh as it goes for podcasting hmm, i wonder if i'm going to use logic i think i think logic well, you know and really honestly like most of the audio production stuff that i would do even to its small degree which i mean honestly god it's really nothing i could do this on my phone or not not that you know my phone is great but just i'm not doing anything right so um, so i might I, you know i stopped using sonar because it was kind of overkill to do the multi-tracking stuff uh, for, for just a podcast for some audio or mastering stuff, it seems like, uh, I have a grip of how to do the editing in logic, maybe a little better than I do in audition, even though I've been using audition for years. Uh, I kind of have the same, the same process and stuff, but there's, there's sort of a way that this is something I, I don't understand yet. And if someone that actually understands logic has listened to any of this, they should tell me about it. But, uh, it seems like in audition, when you have an audio file, like a wave loaded into the program and you're looking at it and editing it, editing it, if you were to apply, say, an EQ effect or a compressor, once you have those settings and then you apply it, it'll render that change to the wave and you have to wait for it. You have to wait like 20 seconds when you apply when you apply an effect like a hard limiter or a compressor or a de-esser and it'll change the full waveform that you're seeing there. In, in Logic, it seems... I guess more like a non-destructive editor where you have your original waveform in your track and then over in the mixer you can apply uh, sends or you can apply these effects as a stack that you can turn on and off and it'll it'll kind of live mix that section of audio that you're hearing and so you can you can stack on a compressor first change those settings and stack on an EQ and then stack on a de-esser and then stack on a limiter or something at the end of that or a, a limiter on your, your master output, something. I don't know. I think that's how you're supposed to do it. So you can do that, and then you can change those settings, and you're not really adapting the original waveform. You're not, doing, you're not doing that in a stage where if, if you turn one on or one off, that you're, you're kind of rendering the whole file in advance. I don't know if I have that totally right, but that's something I'm trying to figure out. So some things that you notice from that is Audition, or programs that kind of bake in the setting effect that you're you're making a change to seem to operate a lot faster i think because the track is sort of is sort of rendered and frozen and it's not have, the processor's not having to do any live rendering of of added effects on top of the file that's already trying to have to have to grab that file and then play that file and then 
add another layer of digital processing to it that you selected through changing settings and then render those settings to the WAV file as it plays it without much latency. Man, it just sounds like a, a lot of tasks to do. So I guess when you have like a, a bigger logic project with 24 instrument tracks, all with compressors and limiters and, and whatever other effects uh, changes there are on it, uh, I, apparently it's just really processor intensive and it, it I don't know, I've already noticed like even just with a few of the smaller demo projects that they have installed with it, and even with my computer being okay, it's uh, it's already like hit like a CPU overload a few times. And logic, logic producers have talked about this a ton of times. There's a bunch of videos out there on uh, like how to stop your CPU overload messages. Some of it's talking about changing your buffer size. Some of it's talking about selecting tracks and freezing them. Uh, or uh, there's a process called freezing a track, sort of similar to what we just talked about with audition, where you're, you're kind of baking in or rendering that track out so that the processor doesn't have to worry about it anymore. And then from there on, uh, you, you can just kind of mix on the single track that you're you're working on at that time. If you're working on a multi-track project, you select the I don't know, select the guitar, but then you can freeze all the drums so that whatever mix that they whatever mix state they were in, the computer doesn't have to worry about processing. It'll only worry about processing the live effects on that single guitar track in the sense that you're, you're, you're making changes to. It's cool. Um, I don't know. There's a few different features and stuff you can do to it. And it's interesting how all of these, uh, these different digital audio workstation controls have come up over the years. I think like for this logic stuff, you know, this is what they're trying to sell Mac pros for. I'm sure like even a Mac mini would be a killer, uh, logic workstation for a studio. But, uh, but yeah, they like that new Mac pro, that gnarly one with, you know, 128 cores. I think one of the things they were, they were trying to demonstrate with that is, you know, with, uh, with a massive, a massive amount of core. And what is it? Probably like eight or 12 or something for the more standard one. I think that, or the whole background of getting, you know, a ton of Ram and a ton of processor space and a ton of cores was uh, to do some of these larger studio mixes of logic projects. You know, say if you have a symphony or you have like a full orchestra or something that you're trying to do a mix of, you have these live effects and compressors running on every track and you could have up to, you know, a hundred or a thousand tracks or something running with these live uh, these live effects that have to be processed on it. And so the idea was, and I, I've heard this at other times, that uh, that larger studios would take would take Mac Pros and run them in tandem so that they would have as many tracks as that individual Mac Pro could have, and then that would be bust down. <laughs> that would be bust down into another mixer where they would have all of those. Is that making sense? Yeah, they would have, let's say, like, uh, I don't know, let's say 100 tracks would be on Mac Pro 1, and then they would have 300 tracks in total, so they would have Mac Pro 2 and 3, and each of those would have 100 tracks that it was responsible for operating in Logic, and then it would run in tandem and then be mixed out to a bus so that you would have all of those tracks rendered down into the 300 onto their their channels. I don't know. It's, it's crazy stuff, but it's, it's kind of this like reduction process. They don't need to do that anymore, apparently because the, I don't know, is what they're trying to sell. You know, these, uh, the, the newer Mac pros, or if you max out a computer to its fullest, you, you can kind of handle some of these larger processor intensive uh, projects like that. In response to that, man, I remember in 2003 using cool edit pro to do 24 
track, multi-track projects on a computer with 800 megahertz, and I didn't really have a problem with it. So I'm not really quite sure what I'm understanding about logic or about audio production stuff in that in that capacity. It seems like there's some other some other tools or other utilities around, uh, not tools, but uh, just some other concepts, right? That uh, that allow you to do stuff without some of the limit. I don't know some of the processor limitations. That's always kind of frustrating when the technology kind of gets in there to fight with you. But uh, but I'm sure that the intent of it is that you do more live processing. That means you have to you have to do less uh, rendering time on each individual track. And man, the mixing process can be really frustrating if you have to render out a million different variations of changes, which is kind of different projects that I've gotten stuck in over the years. So man, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. But uh, it's cool. Yeah, been trying out Logic Pro 10.5 in the. The studio staff learning some keyboard controls, learning how to run some live loops, been trying to mess around with some different mixes and stuff. It's cool. Yeah, you just grab those loops, throw them in. I can make a, a, what I've been trying to do is make like a drum, bass, and sort of texture sound loop that kind of has a couple changes in it. And then I can take a guitar, plug it into the audio interface, set effects that are built into Logic. You can pull up like a pedal board in Logic and then have that adapt the sound of your incoming real instrument and then run that into a track or even just play live into a track and then have those live loops kind of running on the side of it. So you can kind of create like a, you know, like a jam loop or something, you know, you don't have a band to play with, so you can kind of create a couple other instruments that have pieces and then that are going to key, that are going to repeat, and then you can kind of find whatever it is in the guitar that, that you want to to kind of work out an idea or, or work on you know, playing through something. So it's kind of cool. I've been trying that out a bit too. And then uh, once you do have an idea, it's really easy to just kind of lay that down into a track and create a demo out of it. Thanks a lot for checking out this episode of the Billy Newman Photo Podcast. Hope you guys check out some stuff on billynewmanphoto.com. A few new things up there, some stuff on the homepage, some good links to other other outbound sources, some, some links to books, some links to some podcasts, links to some blog posts. All pretty cool. But yeah, check it out at billynewmanaphoto.com. Thanks a lot for listening to this episode of the podcast. Talk to you next time.